The Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. Today, the story behind the name, the Mackenzie Country. Such a well-loved, well-known place in New Zealand, a geographical area. And myself, and I suspect a lot of people think Mackenzie Country must have been named after some wonderful pioneer and savant philanthropist. But it's a far more kind of almost Aussie story. It's named after an outlaw, effectively. Jared. Yeah, the Mackenzie Basin, uh, or the Mackenzie Country, really, how it's colloquially referred to, but it's our biggest intermontane basin. And, you know, it really inspires New Zealanders. We only have to see this from the influx of dairy farms that want to farm there, the huge numbers of submissions. People are very emotively attracted to this huge basin. It's about 40 by 100 kilometres large in the middle of the South Island, but it's named, of course, after James Mackenzie. He was also John or Jock Mackenzie, and he's definitely one of the greatest legends, or sort of legendary figures, if you like, in our history. He's an enduring folk hero, there's no doubt about it. But, you know, it's sort of untangling fact from fiction about this man is a sort of bit of a hard job when it comes to this character. I have to say he was a slippery character and very, very persuasive in his pursuits. He's been sort of blown out of all proportion by writers. There's been a lot of people that have written about him, of course. There's a novel based partly on Mackenzie's life, Chandler's Run by Denise Muir. That was published in 2008. It was very popular. And there's even some songs about him. New Zealand folk musician Mike Harding, he made him the subject of his Mackenzie ballad. And that was originally composed by Cass Tate in 1973 as Mackenzie's Ghost. And there's also James McNeish's book, the Mackenzie Affair. It was adapted for television in 1977. And there's actually a very good earlier book, Mackenzie of the Mackenzie Country by um, Beatty. That was 1946. There's no shortage. I could go on and on about the stuff that's written about him. But you know, Graham, he was the closest thing we have to a Robin Hood. He was an outlaw, a sheep rustler extraordinaire. He was hard out Mackenzie clan he really was you know these guys were reavers they were called reavers over there which is a highland scottish word for a plunderer and he carried on this in New Zealand it was incredibly interesting you know they sided with the Jacobites the Mackenzie clan way back they paid a heavy price and they extracted their punishment by plundering who they perceived would be the higher class people around the mountains and it was nothing to them to go around and steal stuff when you go through a story it's not surprising that this place is named after him and he elicits such incredible emotion with people so many people when I 
go down to Southland, they say, oh, when are you going to do Mackenzie? When are you going to do Mackenzie? He's such an amazing figure. And yet so little is known about him because he was a, a natural Gaelic speaker. And his name, of course, was Shanek McClinich. That was his real name. And he spoke English very, very poorly, or so he feigned. Whenever he was spoken to by authorities or anything like that, he would always claim no English at all. So he was a real true Highlander. A totally true Highlander. And the way he's described things like uh, described as a raw-boned Highlander, as rough as you make them, a regular barbarian. That was one description of him in the press after his trial in 1855. You know, you have to remember that his arrest in New Zealand for stealing sheep it was a particular offence, rustling sheep, 1,000 sheep he was caught in possession with. His crime of rustling sheep when it came up in 1855 was a real sensation. As one early pioneer reporter put it, he said it was a peep show for the province and it was the big run holders versus the people. And around this time in the 1850s, they felt like there was a class developing in Canterbury, the class of the great landowners who were underwriting Christchurch. You know, they paid for the cathedral. They were setting up private schools. And the rest of the sort of lower class that were formed in Canterbury, they felt disowned by this class. People were absolutely mesmerised by this. And, of course, we have this amazing... I'm not going to let too much on now because I really want to give us a bit of a blow-by-blow of how he was caught and stuff. But, you know, we have this fabulous scene of him in court refusing to talk. And then the judge, of course, uh, has this moment. He says, bring in the dog. And he brings in Mackenzie's dog. And Mackenzie breaks down like a baby. The first oh, time wow. anyone had ever seen the man even show any emotion. And, you know, we have to remember that Mackenzie and his dog operated as one unit, one organic unit. It was quite incredible. And he was well known for this. His collie dog was called Friday. And they were absolutely inseparable. There's no doubt about it. Now, there's a fantastic statue of James McKenzie in Fairley. Sam Mann, the sculptor, if you're listening, I have to say it's one of the best bronze sculptures I have ever seen. You have captured him so perfectly. The statue is described as the man and his dog facing into the wind, McKenzie and Friday facing into the wind and they're sort of crouching slightly but he's described as looking down on a stolen flock and McKenzie's hand is poised above the dog which is crouched forward, you know, just like a collie does, bent down, crouching forward, ready to go but he's waiting the hand of his master and there were 450 kilograms of bronze went into that statue and it stands on a rock from Mackenzie Pass. It's just an absolute fantastic bit of art that captures it so well. And you can't tell the story of Mackenzie without talking about his dog as well. It's an integral part of him. These two were absolutely inseparable and the dog was trained not to make any noise or bark. He would bark only if, if allowed by his master. So the dog was totally in on this caper as well, I have to say.
What a lovely place Fairley is. <laughs> Just so charming. Yeah, oh, it's totally. And the, it's so historic, that area. Actually, there's a neat place. It explains the dog. There's a place called Dog Kennel Corner. And uh, it's halfway between Burke's Pass and Tekapo as you come into the Mackenzie country. And there's a sharp turn to the right there that goes off to some stations off my head, the Grampians and Grays Hill, Halden and Black Forest Station. But I sort of know that country quite well. But when it was all one big run, a dog was tethered at this corner at a kennel and he was the boundary dog and it was his job when a man couldn't be there as well but the dog's job was to hold back the sheep and this is before they had wire Graham for fences. Wire was a very American invention so a border collie was situated at the border and he'd bark his head off if he saw the sheep coming. He'd just go into a fray about it and the sheep would head back into the big run. And sheep are very predictable when they get going. They'll come through little passes and things. But it's such fantastic history. And this is really integral with Mackenzie's story, if you like. But there's such fantastic history. I'll just tell you from Dog Kennel Corner, the road, it runs straight for about six miles. That's called Snowden's Flat. But halfway along is Dead Man's Creek. That was 1876. A shepherd got caught out here and he died of exposure. And when they found him, his faithful dog was beside him and a string of weckers all lined up that the dog had bought back for his master when he woke up hungry. Oh, how heartbreaking. Oh, it's touching, Graham. And, and then just along Whiskey Creek where a dray was bringing whiskey and two-gallon clay jugs that went over the edge. And there's just so many lovely stories, I have to say, from that whole country. But the Mackenzie country sort of inspires this. It really does. Nothing prettier than a whore. Frost in Fairley on a lovely day. Gosh, it's a lovely spot to be. Oh, it really is. I love calling in there, I must say. But before Mackenzie went in there, there were very few people ever went through that hadn't been opened up yet. It didn't get opened up until after Mackenzie's crime in the late 50s, 1850s, really, that it became a series of runs. But he basically explored it, Graham, and it just suited him, this country. It was probably almost certainly known by the Maoris, without a doubt, the Mackenzie country. But, you know, it was really only hunting expeditions and what have you. There were very few people that ever ventured in here and he was definitely one of them. Not a lot to be had there once the mower had gone and they went bloody quickly. I know they did and they speculate that there were huge totra forests there too. A lot of it was just burnt off in the pursuit of mower. So our man, Jock McKenzie, which is the English version of his Gaelic name, is basically a refugee of the clearances when they found it was more economical to run sheep than people in the highlands of Scotland. Yeah, and he came from almost certainly from Rosshire in Scotland and he was born about 1820, we know that. As I said, he spoke Gaelic fluently but English only poorly, especially when under pressure. And he had an interesting little habit he did. He was a large man, about six feet tall. He had red hair and a flaming red beard and he had piercing eyes. 
very high cheekbones. That was one thing that people would notice about him, and very piercing blue eyes. And he had a habit of standing with his hands behind his back if anyone spoke to him, and he would click his fingers. It was quite interesting. But we do know a few little things about him. We know that his father had possibly held a high position under the crown. This is what he always said anyway, and had died in Ceylon. Now, this is Sri Lanka, and it left his family in very needy circumstances. Now, the young Mackenzie immigrated to Australia about 1849. He stated that with the backing of an advance of 200 pounds. He, he got that from his cousin Alistair or Alexander Mackenzie. He was the High Sheriff of Melbourne and Jock Mackenzie, James Mackenzie, he used the money to purchase a team of bullocks and he carried goods to the gold diggings, mainly at Bendigo, and he accumulated, amazingly, Graham, he accumulated a thousand pounds doing this. A thousand pounds in their money? Yeah. In, in 1820s money? A thousand pounds money. in that day. That's incredible. I mean, that's a lot of money. And he He's a millionaire. Yeah. And he was, how old would he be? About 28, I'd say, when he came to Australia. And he just went for it. He was taking big bullock loads of goods to the gold fields. And as we know, of course, most of the best profits were made by storekeepers and carters, of course to the gold diggings, and then he decided to move to New Zealand where he'd heard of great pastoral country. Now, he disembarked at Nelson, we know that from the passenger list, and he worked his way down through Canterbury to Otago and claimed to have applied for a land licence in the Mataura district of Otago, and he worked as a drover there while waiting for the result of a land application. Now, this is where we first get recorded history about him. It's quite interesting, this. It sounds like he was definitely getting up to mischief at this time. And they talk about how he acquired this dog. And together, they were a formidable little team, actually. And he trained it, as I said, not to bark. Together they started stealing whole mobs of sheep from rich coastal farmers. So he's beginning his misdemeanours in New Zealand after immigrating here from, well, effectively, well, by way of Australia, but from the highlands of Scotland. It is Mackenzie of the Mackenzie country this week. We'll be back very shortly. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh, another very famous name in New Zealand history. It's etched in our geography. It's Mackenzie of the Mackenzie country, a Gaelic-speaking Scotsman, of course, from the Highlands, and he's made his way to New Zealand, and he gets into sheep rustling. This is his business, basically. He's um, he's starting stealing sheep with his famous dog, Friday. Jared. Okay, now I have to be careful saying he's a rustler, Graham. He was actually pardoned of this crime, actually. Oh, I, I yeah. Say. But, you know, all evidence does point to some pretty shifty business that he was getting up to. There's no doubt about it. And the first real mention of Mackenzie, as I said, was in the deep south in Matara, uh, where he arrived with a sledge and 
two bullocks and his dog at a sheep station owned by Mr. Meevil. Now, he became a familiar sight in both Canterbury and Otago as he passed through the countryside with his dog and pack bullock and suspicions were starting to be aroused as uh, run holders began noticing curious disappearances of sheep around the place. Now, he was quite a political man too, and when he got going, he would talk to the people he wanted to talk to, and he would always be putting down the rich run holders. He said that justice had to be done. And of course, what were some of the most needed things of, of small farmers back then when sheep basically numbers of sheep to build up flocks and of course it was quite possible that he was supplying these sheep he would steal these sheep and in the middle of the night usually drive them undetected into the Mackenzie country through his secret mountain pass which is now Mackenzie Pass to the high country plains and then south to Dunedin where he'd sell them for a handsome profit. Now this was a journey that he was doing on a repeatable basis about 300 miles or so this journey just him and his dog. It was no mean feat to do this to go through totally unknown country. But as I said, suspicions were aroused when many run holders, they began noticing curious disappearances of sheep. Anyway, it led up to his capture and it's quite a remarkable little story actually about how it happened. But on this particular day in March 1855, 1,000 sheep from the Two Levels sheep station just completely disappeared. Now, the man in charge of them was a Mr. John Sidebottom. He couldn't believe that these sheep had gone missing because he worked for the Rhodes brothers, George and Robert Rhodes, who owned Two Levels Station. They were quite meticulous about sheep, where they would be kept. Anyway, they had made a huge three-foot-high yard made of sods and had all these sheep safe in them. And John Sidebottom had left two Maori lads. Now, their names were Seventeen and Tycho. Presumably he was 17 because oh, he wouldn't have been the 17th child, but I'd say just because they hired him when he was 17 years old. But anyway, he's the hero in this 17. And uh, these two Maori lads were in charge of the sheep in the sod yard. Anyway, they woke up one morning and they were surprised when they, there was just no sheep there, they'd been, obviously, they'd gotten out. What had happened, anyway, an agitated 17 ran back to his boss, John Sidebottom, and he said, Boss, the sheep have gone. Now, 17 was a very clever lad, actually. He was good at tracking, and he started to track these stolen sheep. Of course, in the, the thousand sheep, Graham, are, are relatively easy to track. And sure enough, he found a fresh sheep track with the steps of one man and a dog beside him. Now, on the Saturday, this is what he said, on the Saturday, we saw tracks of a bullock and another man for certain and a third man tracks doubtful. So there was a little bit of doubt, if you like, that the 17 in court came up with separate tracks of two men. And this would later get the case reviewed. 
Just before sundown on the Sunday, they reached the summit of Dalgetty Pass. Now, they were all looking now, following the sheep tracks. They described it as, from which a vast expanse of tussock-covered plain opened before them. They'd never been into this country before, and below them lay a lowish range, and in the far distance, mountains all snow-covered, stretching as far as the eye could see. But right at their feet was a small valley, and it was just perfect size for holding a thousand sheep. And there, in the natural paddock formed by the junction of two streams, were their thousand ewes, and it was being guarded by a man and a dog. Uh-huh. Caught red-handed, I suspect. Yeah. Now the three men scrambled carefully down the steep gully, hoping um, not to be seen by Mackenzie, which he didn't. And they said they collared him without a fight. Collared was the word they used. They also took a feed of his damper, mutton, tea and sugar for their trouble. This was all recorded in the evidence of the court. Now, Sidebottom, John Sidebottom, was determined to bring Mackenzie to justice. He said, you've stolen our sheep. And he, he said he removed Mackenzie's boots but left his hands untied because he was a big man, Mackenzie. He was not a man that you'd really want to mess with. But anyway, they had a bit of a scuffle. They took his boots off, which means that he probably couldn't go very far. And they all sat down for the evening meal. This was interesting. Now, the three settled down for the night, but not for long. And they were disturbed by voices calling out in the dark. And it was obviously Mackenzie, and he was up to mischief now to escape. Their dogs were all growling. He was basically wanting to make the sheep break camp. Now, if you've ever mustered sheep, Graham, you'll know that at the first light of dawn, a mob of sheep will get going. They don't just hang around for breakfast or anything. They just take off. And so you've always got to be ready by first sparrow's fart. You've got to be up and ready and ready to go with them. And Mackenzie knew this and he was creating complete mischief so he could make his escape. And in the early hours of the morning, he began whistling and cooing all around. And anyway, John Sidebottom gave evidence for this later and he said, I had to force him down again and told him to lie still or I should be under the painful necessity of administering a bark poultice to his head. Of course, that meant a stout stick. It was just a sort of uh, one of the terms they used back then. You'd give someone a bark poultice. Uh-huh. There was a real fear that there was more men involved in this than just Mackenzie. It seemed unreal that one man and a dog could steal a thousand sheep. So they were worried that there might be an attempt in the early morning to rescue Mackenzie. Now, side bottom, he quickly broke camp as soon as he could and he went ahead to lead the sheep up the awful hill, as they said, back to where they'd come. Now, 17 was following in charge of Mackenzie because he was quite a large lad and he was quite able as well. He had Mackenzie and his dog and there seemed to be a bullock there as well in one piece of evidence. But anyway, under cover of a thick fog they started to encounter, Mackenzie made a dash for it. Now, 
17 raced after him and quickly recaptured him, but he couldn't hold him down. I mean, it's one thing to catch up with a man, but it's quite something to restrain him. And Mackenzie was furious now, swearing in Gaelic at him and pushing him away. And basically, 17 knew that he just had to give up because he had no way of restraining him. They had to admit their quarry had escaped now. Side bottom and his men, they drove the sheep through all the next day and the next night. Now it was a distance of 25 miles back over the rough country and they'd gotten all the sheep back, the sheep were all safe and they now had Mackenzie's bullock and they also had his dog which 17 had been wise enough to tie up but they didn't have Mackenzie. Now Sidebottom wrote a letter to the station owner Rhodes and he said that he noticed the old sheep tracks leading up to Dalgetty Pass. He said they were heavy sheep tracks indicating a large mob and it was his opinion that they were tracks of an earlier mob which Mackenzie had driven off the levels as well and these had disappeared the previous year. So they were on to it now. Mackenzie had escaped. Mackenzie's luck really didn't last that long. There was an alert put out and policemen everywhere looked out for him. He was a character that you just couldn't miss. So they're basically being told to look out for Willie, the groundskeeper from The Simpsons. Exactly. And even though he'd been caught in the possession of the sheep, there were also tracks, though, belonging to several other men. Ah. Now, he was arrested by police who found him resting in a bunk in the loft. Uh, Now, this was at Littleton, and he'd escaped and walked. It was quite an amazing feat. He'd walked 100 miles to Littleton, almost in a direct line. He was arrested by police who who got a tip-off, actually, and they found him resting in a bunk in the loft of some stables. Now, this loft was lit by a candle, and it gave enough light for the sergeant to observe. Now, the sergeant interestingly wrote this down and presented it to the court. He said, Mackenzie had the most remarkable eyes I have ever seen. They were ferret-like and so keen and piercing as to give a character of cunning to the whole face. The man had red hair and uncommonly high cheekbones and from his size seemed an ugly customer to tackle. I raised my pistol and shouted to him, You are the man. I arrest you on a charge of stealing sheep from the level station. Mackenzie had no choice now. He gave himself up. All right. Now there is a trial, and it's quite an affair and an amazing story. We'll return with the story of Mackenzie, of the Mackenzie country, with Jared Hindmarsh very shortly. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Jock or John Mackenzie, the man who gave his name to the Mackenzie country. A sheep rustler, you've got to say, and he's been caught doing this all by himself. Well, not not entirely all by himself. He has his faithful dog. He and his dog, famous um, statues have been erected of both. You can go and see one in Fairley. 
Fairly nice place to visit anyway. Okay, uh, so he's been caught, and so he is going to be charged and thrown in the slammer, one would assume. Yeah, and the arrest of Mackenzie attracted huge interest. The sheep rustling was a relatively new thing in New Zealand, and he was doing it on a vast scale. Some of the rich run holders were losing a thousand sheep at a time, Graham. This was a serious crime. Reporters crammed the court. I've got a report here from one of the reporters, actually. He wrote... I fell right into the McKenzie trial. It was a peep show for the province. The tiny Littleton courthouse was like a sardine tin. In front was Jock McKenzie, solid as a brick and dumb as an oyster. The judge called on him to plead and the case proceeded. One by one, the witnesses rounded off the whole story of the stolen mob in McKenzie's fight. John Sidebottom and the two married lads, Tycho and Seventeen, they also gave their evidence. It was one after another, and there were previous implications to previous rustling endeavours as well. But uh, anyway, the judge found that they were making really no headway because there was nothing coming from Mackenzie at all. And finally, the judge just said, he called out, bring in the dog. This is how the reporter says it. He said, describes it so well. I'm just going to use his words. He said, I saw Mackenzie start and start gnawing his fingers a moment as the crowd stared at the slim, timid little black beast that had outwitted grey old shepherds with the dumb crambo tricks Mac had taught her. She slipped her chain coming in now, I have an account here that the dog went into a frenzy when it got led into the court and saw his master. And the reporter goes on, And in another minute, the slim, sad-eyed thing was scratching and whining at the woodwork, trying to get to Jock. And Jock, the dog's eyes have made a baby of him, six-footer that he was. The tears began running down and lost themselves in his red beard as he said over and over, Hey, lassie, poor lassie, they got you too. Well, I felt smaller than Matchwood that minute. There on one hand was all civilization with its thumb turned down, and on the other this Neolithic survival of a man and his soft-eyed dog bearing it all. Now the judge pipes up, that's enough, remove the dog. Now Mackenzie finally starts talking, he says, leave the dog to me, she was mine, bought with my own money, she was doing no harm to nobody and she was a good friend to me that has no other, leave me the poor beastie, I'll make your roads, I'll break your stone, I'll call myself thief but let her stay, she'll work for me, never will lift sheep any more, only let me have her. And the judge was stone faced and his words just dropped like frost he said the keeping of the dog did not rest with him nor did Mackenzie deserve mercy after his attempt to deceive the court the trial proceeded for several days and in early April 1855 he was found guilty by the Littleton Supreme Court jury and sentenced to five years 
hard labour. So his number was up and his dog was taken away from him. Oh. oh. This is heart-rending movie stuff, isn't it? Oh, it really is. Oh, the outlaw and his dog. Oh, dear. All right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, um, how he served his time, his legacy, and more about the man, the rest of his life, the man who gave the name Mackenzie to the Mackenzie country, Jock Mackenzie. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. This week, a very famous New Zealand name, Mackenzie. We're not talking the supermarket, we're talking <laughs> We're talking the Mackenzie country. Uh, it's a special place. Go there at once. Tekapo's lovely. Uh, James Mackenzie, known as Jock, from the Highlands. Effectively, I suppose you could say, a refugee from the Scottish clearances in the end uh, but he made it to New Zealand via Australia he did very well in Australia making thousands of pounds which is a lot of money in those days so uh, he comes to the South Island and starts a sheep rustling he's gotten caught and he is in court the verdict is guilty and the sentence is five years hard labor oh but will he get to keep the dog? Dear, oh dear, oh dear. Okay, what's the story from here, Jared? So he was put into a road gang, five years hard labour. And where was the dog? Yeah, exactly. His dog had been taken away and he never saw that dog again. Oh, no. Sad thing. The dog would have been heartbroken too. You know, collies are some of the most intelligent animals and very loyal to their owners, of course. And especially if that, that collie probably only knew one human being. Yeah, exactly. You know, they would have slept together yeah. every night and, uh, you know. But Mackenzie, he was put on a road gang and he escaped twice. He was just impossible. Now, this was May and in June. He was sentenced in April. He escaped in May. What year is this? 1855. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, May and June, and but neither escape lasted more than three days, and he was finally placed in irons and carefully watched in prison. He was considered like the uh, highest risk prisoner, basically. Now, uh, a lot of people were not happy with his conviction. They said that the evidence um, had been slanted, and what about the other tracks that had been seen. He was possibly not the only, either the only rustler or not a rustler. Anyway, in September 1855, Christchurch got a new resident magistrate and he decided to investigate Mackenzie's case. And he spent several months examining the case and the evidence and he found flaws in both the police inquiry and the trial. Now, he moved to pardon Mackenzie and he was officially pardoned in January 1856. He now had no blemishes on his career. Pardoned? Wow. Just completely pardoned and... That is basically the end of Mackenzie as we know it in New Zealand. 
he hop-footed off to Australia, never to be seen again, actually, and nothing is known of his later life. And interestingly, I think it made him an extremely wary man. He just didn't leave a trail. He was known to also use aliases later in his life. John Douglas was one of the names that he used. So, you know, who knows where or what he got up to after that. But Mackenzie's exploits, they just won him the admiration of those on the margins of society and small would-be farmers wanting their own land or resenting the power of large wealthy landowners they they started to identify with them and a lot of people just didn't fit the mold of genteel Canterbury society and it, it was his rebelliousness and triumph of his pardon at one popular sympathy in a frontier society you know it was still forming New Zealand's frontier society was forming and they sort of started giving him uh, this this image of superhuman strength and the the feats of his fabulous dog were talked about by farmers and just his amazing ability as as a shepherd and a drover and a thief, of course, in his rebellious spirit. But interestingly, 1857, there is one little story that after one of his escapes, he stole a horse and galloped to Littleton and that was one of the stories as well. But, you know, I think that a lot of that has, the the sort of oral traditions have grown into sort of potent myths, if you like. Yeah, he's turned into a romanticised thief. Oh, of course he is. And he was like a Robin Hood. He would sell these sheep very cheap. Well, he hadn't paid anything for them. Exactly. He was 100% profit. Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, and and of course, within a matter of years, the Mackenzie country was cut into runs. And of course, they used the same passes to drove sheep that Mackenzie had used, and it almost became folklore almost immediately that this large area got called the Mackenzie country because it's actually Mackenzie Basin, if you like. Mm. And it's virtually right in the middle of the South Island. And it was practically empty before he came along. And he travelled with his flock with virtual immunity through this area, you know. And it was only after that he that he, that he was caught that this large wilderness was actually opened up. But we're so lucky today that the that the Mackenzie country is so accessible. Before, you know, you could only walk through it, but now, of course, we've got State Highway 8 through Burke's Pass. That's 709 metres altitude, and that's in the north. And then there's Lindus Pass from the south. That's 965 metres. So, you know, it gives you an idea of the height of this country, nearly, you know, just under a 1,000 metres. And from the east, you can go State Highway 8, through the Waitaki Valley, but it's generally higher in the north uh, and slopes gently south, you know, but it's just such a remarkable country of red tussocks and grasses and you know you can still see why it, it causes such a and so many people have worked there Graham not only on farms but putting of course the hydro lakes there Benmore, Aviemore and Ruatanafua and the other lakes that are there the natural lakes of Ohau and Pukaki and Tekapa what's the other one Alexandrina I think mm-hmm. it is the smaller one 
but it's just got this fabulous country it inspires us and that's why I think you know it's almost a throwback to Mackenzie that there's this emotive outpouring of objection when people want to put in irrigation schemes there I mean one farm was going to have a, a sewerage output of Christchurch you know and it got 5,000 objections all emotive you can see all those big green circles in the Mackenzie country now with this with all the irrigation that's happening for yeah the farming. that's right and you know, and I think the big thing about Mackenzie, he, he's become almost legendary because he he represented that sort of old world immigrant who came and wanted to have an unfettered life, you know. Yeah, his weariness of a class system developing was, I think, a, a, a good thing. Yeah, they're the real outsiders. You know, these sort of gritty people, they put our conventions into sharp relief and they they help us in some way understand our own social and cultural ways. I reckon they do. You know, we're forced to ask ourselves questions. They almost become critics on the edge of society, even if they're not actually asking the questions. But writers the world over have feasted on these sort of people for years, I suppose. And when I think of Annie Pro, she's the Connecticut-born writer. She describes the, her subjects of her story as broke, proud, ingenious characters setting their heels against civilised society's pull. Mm. And this is exactly what we have with Mackenzie. He was a classic, one out of the box, and he got badly burnt in New Zealand. He just hot-footed off and no doubt tried it again somewhere else, I'd say. And so nobody knows where his grave is? No, no one knows. And, uh, you know, his story, he just made it so he could just disappear I suppose yeah reasonably easy to do even in Australia today if you walk far enough and uh, he's probably using a different name over there Graham yeah yeah wonder if there are many reports of mysterious sheep disappearances he wouldn't have been the only one <laughs> okay oh, lovely right. lovely story of a much loved character in the end Jock McKenzie of the McKenzie country and his faithful dog, and what a story, what a moment, when that dog comes into the courthouse, and he bawls like a baby. Oh, never saw the dog again. No, sad. Gerard Hindmarsh, thank you very much, lovely. Another tremendous outsider's story. Good one, Graham. When evening shadows lengthen, and starry skies glow bright, at rest beside your campfire, keeping warm on chilly nights, you might hear a distant whistle, or a far-off whale ago. Then see a highland shepherd with a phantom mob of sheep in eerie silence passing, so walking in their sleep. At their heels closely followed by a silent collie dog, his master's true companion, before they vanish in the fog. Perhaps this ghostly vision will send shivers down your spine while you watch this cavalcade forever tramping onwards down the corridors of time. Mustered from Southland through Central and North To that rough barren country of Tussock and Gorse Where I've listened to tales that the old shearers tell Pass them along with me on 
yarns as well. Mackenzie, Mackenzie was that you I saw roaming them back hills just up from Benmore with fifty odd sheep and a good shepherd's dog. Was it your ghost in the morning fog? They tell of Mackenzie, a sheep stealer, they say, who stole squatter's sheep and he drove them away with one strong eyed dog. Who could hypnotize she? Led them to a plane where no man had been. Mackenzie, Mackenzie was that you I saw. Roaming them back hills just up from Benmore. With fifty odd sheep and a good shepherd's dog. Was it your ghost in the morning fog? Some called him a thief and some a good man Put down by the Lord and his dog it was damned Locked up in jail he quickly broke free Before they caught him again Hung his dog from a tree Mackenzie, Mackenzie Was that you I saw Roping them back hills To stop from Benmore With fifty odd sheep And a good shepherd's dog was it your ghost in the morning fog? When high country gales start to blow through the night Where muster is camp by the fire's dim light Strange sounds can be heard way off in the dark, like a shepherd's shrill whistle and a low dog's bark. Mackenzie, Mackenzie was that not bad, evocative, even quite a lovely thing. And I should tell you who it was is Phil Garland, and that's Mackenzie's Ghost, and it's from an album called Swag of Dreams. Hope you enjoyed tonight's Outsiders. Don't forget there's an archive full of them on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. I'm going away for a couple of weeks. Off to see a favourite band next weekend. And I'll be back in a couple. So uh, Ryan Bradley will be with you over the next couple of weekends. Thank you very, very much for listening. Overnight Talk, 0800 844 747.